0: Hello and welcome to Carer Catalysts, a podcast that connects innovators for unpaid carers. I'm Suzanne, co-founder and head of carer support at Mobilize. I'm also caring for my husband, Matt, who has young onset Parkinson's.
1: And I'm James, CEO and co-founder of Mobilize. But perhaps more importantly, I'm son to my mum, who has MS.
0: And at Mobilize, we believe that with innovation, technology, and a bold vision, we can help carers to thrive.
1: And we're bringing the same energy to this podcast, hearing from inspiring leaders in adult social care from across the country, listening to their stories about making transformational change for unpaid carers.
0: So sit back, grab a cup of tea and join us for Carer Catalysts, brought to you by Mobilise. So welcome everyone. And thanks for taking some time out of your day to join us for this Carer Catalysts podcast. And it's really great to be together doing this podcast, James. Now, you got to talk to our latest interviewee, Debbie Hustings. Um, many people will know Debbie, but just in case people don't, who is she?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it does it does feel like talking to a celebrity in uh, a very niche form of celebrity in, in the world of carer support. Uh, but Debbie is, is a total legend. Uh, so she's currently uh, the lead in London for the NH- NHS England's uh, unpaid carers team. Uh, But she's she's holding that position with 17 years of experience as carers lead in Surrey for what is now the the ICS, Surrey Heartlands. Um, So so brings, you know, a huge amount of expertise around how to make things happen, uh, how to make uh, change happen, particularly. But also, you know, looking at the other dimensions of unpaid carer support that have happened over the last Uh, 20-odd years.
0: Yeah, so I've already had the chance to listen to the interview. And for me, it really clarified why Debbie is such an influential innovator for carers. So she's got her own lived experience of caring in a variety of circumstances, a passion for unpaid carers, having a more positive experience. And she's got this fantastic network of people who share that passion. People know that working on something with Debbie is always going to be truly impactful. So it's a good use of their time. And what a great platform from which to build innovation.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, um, let's get on with it. Um, I I sat down with Debbie just the other day. Have a listen. Debbie, it's such a treat to have some time with you. You're you're a very special person in the world of carers generally, but also important piece of trivia here. There are only two people in the world who are allowed to call me Jimmy. And uh, one of them is my mother and you are the other. Um, So it's... (laughs) It's a very special treat to be with you. Thank you for making time to to join the Care Catalyst podcast.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me, James.
1: Um, Debbie, ever since I got involved in the world of unpaid carer support, you've um, been a really central figure. And, and what really comes across in your work is that passion for doing things for unpaid carers. W- where does that passion come from for you?
2: Oh gosh James that 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 takes me back uh, I I'm actually a carer myself and um I I came into caring uh, like many carers by sort of default I had no idea what I did was called being a carer and um, to be honest, nobody, uh, none of the professionals I worked with at that time had any idea w- what I was doing or, or what I was trying to do. All I knew is that one of my family had a, a need and I I needed to be there to to support them through that very, very difficult time. So, um This was, of course, back in the 80s, and we have seen such huge changes. At the time, I was working um, managing a a voluntary sector organisation, but I, I took the... Well, the rather large step um, to move into uh, the world of the statutory sector um, provider, uh, a pa- poacher turned gamekeeper. or, or, or <laughs> So it was described at the time. Um, and uh, it was there that I was afforded the opportunity, first in social care, to start working around carers, but also then um, uh, probably in the early noughties then to move into the health arena where Again, there was just so much need um, that I felt my skills would be be better utilized in that space uh, james so mm.
1: you you mentioned that you 've spotted some differences between the the sectors there and, and and the progress that has been made since the '80s What would be the highlights for you in in seeing that progress and the differences between the sectors
2: yes i mean i think I think there are So many milestones that I can cite and it's, it's been a real privilege to be working in this space for so long because I think in the moment it, it can be quite hard for carers to see that progress. Um, but back in the eighties, there wasn't, there was virtually no, um, rights, no awareness. Um, uh, cer- certainly nobody knew how to to support me. And uh, over those years, we've seen national carers strategies being formulated, specific funding targeted at, at supporting carers. And of course, we've seen fantastic uh, progress in legislative rights and, and policy, um, culminating most recently in the Health and Care Act, which of course creates new duties on ICBs um, around carers. So I, I, I really have i can really mark and step the changes over my career although of course i do appreciate there's still a huge amount to do
1: and and it's really interesting that you you get that opportunity to see the progress over a career whereas it, so often a caring role goes on for a, a couple of years but not necessarily mm-hmm. that long so it's harder to, to see the pro progress. What what keeps your motivation going, given the the rate of progress can often be so slow?
2: Yes, and, and there is a lot of unwarranted variation, isn't there, James? So I think for me, um, what, there's a number of things. I've had a number of caring roles. I mean, during the last 30 years, I've cared for five members of my family, most recently my mother. I cared for her end of life in lockdown and, and, and the very difference between caring for my mother um, in lockdown as compared to my father in in the 90s was so marked. Um, so uh, my, my mother was discharged from hospital into my care um, but um, before she was discharged, I had contact with 12 different services um, who were all there to support me and wrap around that support for me so I could care for my mum at home. And she she had a good death, um, which I, I couldn't say my, my father had. Uh, he ended up being blue lighted in a, an ambulance uh, on the day of his death. So I, I, I can really mark the changes. And I, I always say, James, that my work will be done the day that um, someone in the NHS says to me, oh, Debbie, um, that thing you do is what we call being a carer, and and there are rights and services, and that actually happened to me in in twenty twenty. Yeah, and I I actually thought when you know penetrating that that culture and and those fixed behaviours in health. Um, it was such an occasion for me, um, just just on a, both on a professional life, but so it also demonstrated, you know, on a personal level, what an impact that has, because, you know, carers are more likely to have a, a, an interface with health than they are with, with, with social care. And unless we get it right in health, we can't, we can't really um, provide that seamless transition through into social care and other services to support them. So our, our duty is really in the NHS to, to do everything we can to empower our staff to, to have those conversations and be really proactive at, at identifying carers, whether they want the title or not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so that's a whole question that we'll come on to in a moment. Uh, just something you say there wants, m- makes me want to step outside of the interviewer role, because, um, and, and it's that piece about variation and that idea that sometimes we, we, we see we can do it. I used to be in education, and the big challenge in education is whether you can get kids from really disadvantaged backgrounds to get fantastic educational achievement. And so often, there's a sort of myth that it's somehow impossible to do that. And there's one outfit, King Solomon Academy, who just throw everything they've got at some kids from really, really tough backgrounds, and they get amazing results. Mm. And, and I think it's really important to hold up those case studies, because, yeah, we have not sorted this out for everybody yet it is the the kind of experience as a carer that you just described with somebody coming up and saying um you know there is a word for for what you're doing is not true in every hospital yet but it does happen and it shows that you can if we get this right we can make it work and for me that's that's a really motivating uh, element of the um of, of the work that we're doing Debbie, you mentioned just a moment ago the uh, 12 different services that approach you uh, when you were taking on responsibilities uh, for your mum. And that leads really nicely onto the carers contingency plan that you've been working on, because I think this is a really great example of innovation that we can share uh, with listeners to the podcast. Can you say a little bit about what that plan is and maybe the journey of how it arrived as Well,
2: Mm. Oh, thank you so much for that opportunity. Um, carer contingency planning is so important, isn't it? For all of us who are carers, we want peace of mind, don't we? That if we ourselves aren't able to care, that, that there will be someone else who will step in. And um, I've never been entirely convinced by the the sort of emergency cards and, and other apparatus that have been put out there by by various very well-meaning um, people to support care contingency planning. Um, I'm not. I'm, I, I think the links are incredibly tenuous. It, so um, the analogy, James, would be if I was walking down the high street and had a heart attack. What are the chances are that A, I would have my emergency card in my wallet, B, that the um, ambulance crew would find it, C, that they would get a response from the name that I'd put on the back of the, the card and, and D, that they would find a, a paper copy of my, my plan at home. I, I think it, it's, it's, it becomes weaker as you go down that list. And so I saw in London a, an opportunity and I, I have to say it, it's always my motto that it can be done. Um, if there's a problem, there is always a solution. And as you know, James, I'm not particularly technical. Um, but I'm not afraid to, to, to put, put my foot in the, the water and, 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 and throw a few ideas out and see if any of them catch and in london we had um something last year that was relaunched it it, it was a, initially it was coordinate my care which was a di- digital records of of people's advanced care plans and um they then uh created that into an urgent care plan And this year it's evolved yet again into something called a universal care plan. So it basically adopts um, those principles around personalisation, which is so important. What matters to me, none of that clinical talk, um, you know, it it really drills down. And so we, we put in a bid. Um, it, was, it was it wasn't for money. It was just to to offer up a proposal that as part of the future involvement of the universal care plan, that carer contingency planning could be hosted this way. And we were delighted when they came back and said yes. Um, so we had to scramble. Um, we had to create a, a task group Um to make sure that uh, we reflected all the different users um, as well as the carers uh, expectation. And we were tasked with Um, standardising the the carer's uh, data set that would fit into a a template on the universal care plan. And we're on that journey now. In fact, we're having a a forum at the end of this month to go and uh, check and confirm with our carers um, that, you know, they're happy with with the progress we have made on, on these data sets. And here's the thing, James, this plan It's the scale of it. So everyone in London at some point will be invited to have a universal care plan. At the moment, they have 55,000 of these things. So the scale and the spread is fantastic for us. We've never managed to break into something quite as exciting as this. And here's the other thing. These plans will be coded so that they become alerts right up front. They'll surface on the universal care plan so that should an urgent care practitioner be the one trying to resuscitate you on the high street, that information will ping right up in front of them. And they'll know that there's someone potentially at home who will need support, which I, as a carer, um, just think is marvellous because at the moment I don't get any peace of mind in the the, the apparatus that is around me. This will not only link to, to um, providing the urgent care um, team uh, a number um, to ring and contact but it will also provide details of that person's care needs. So it's a very exciting moment. And the potential is huge because from September, the London Universal Care Plan is going to be uh, transferred onto the NHS app. Now, um, I know as a carers, we, we use our apps all the time, don't we? And the ability to have proxy rights to, to um, edit my carer contingency plan on my NHS app seems to me just just a thing of be a thing of beauty, James. I I, I, I... <laughs> idea that I'm controlling that that data and that I can update it as I require so I keep I I keep that um, efficacy of that emergency plan right at my fingertips and I think this will break through that glass ceiling for carers in London um, and hopefully in the fullness of time will be available nationally to to other carers up and down the country
1: so I mean, first up, Debbie, congratulations on getting it this far, because it's clearly uh, got so much potential. But even the progress that you've made today is is huge. And I just want to drill into that, because um, so often when we're looking at innovations, there are sort of nonsensical things that we feel like we're banging our head against a wall thinking, come on, this this should be so obvious. Mm -hmm. And what you've just described sort of sort of sounds kind of obvious, but those of us who are trying to make innovations happen know that things get in the way there. So, I just want to drill down into uh, some of the ways that you have made that happen, and I I wonder if you could you could say what what you think has been the key to making that happen, and crucially, Debbie, you've mentioned the word scale already. How are you making it happen? across boundaries and in different areas at that kind of scale?
2: Mm. Well... I absolutely believe, James, in in sort of strategic partnership working. I think, if you're out my career, the best results I've ever had for carers have been when I've pulled down the wall, pulled down the barriers, and uh, gone and t- talked with people who perhaps um, may be considered uh, the other side of the fence. Um, and I think bringing together people with a common cause. If, if you if you can coalesce around a common cause and and care seems to me such a great cause um and you can persuade people um uh that you know of the right of that cause i think is so important so i think for us in the n h s we've been missing a trick for years i think in sort of under supporting carers we've actually created more work for ourselves and uh, and i actually think that by a very small investment of um time and effort and willingness to partner up we can actually um bridge those uh boundaries carers should be able to travel seamlessly through all our services and carer contingency planning is an example of that so the the duty for emergencies it rests actually with the local authority but it won't be the local authority driving the ambulance so we've got to work together it, it's it's a pragmatic approach and i i would say one other thing james is uh i think the building of relationships and building of trust is hugely important and uh and I think that can take time, but I, I I think you it's best achieved when one one focuses on, on the positive. I I've spent many years um, hearing people um, telling me why I can't do things, um, and actually it it's almost a, a trigger for me now uh, when people tell me <laughs> I, I can't. I'm, I'm, quite determined. And I and, and that is I, I draw a salary, James, and and for me I I have a a real um need to justify that salary to the caring population. And it's not for me to tell them it's too hard to do. It's for me to find those solutions. And sometimes we we don't succeed. But actually, we always learn something from um those failed attempts and and eventually we get to a point like we are now with the carer contingency planning that actually feels like we 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 have broken through the glass ceiling so it's it's a it's a win for our carers, and that's all that matters
1: yeah there's there's something so important about keeping carers at front of mind. Uh, there and, and knowing that ultimately, you know, we're, we're acting on their behalf in in so many ways, yeah. and and you really emphasise there, and, and it's it's something that I see from you, Debbie. Sorry, I'm not try, not trying to embarrass you here, but I I think it's really exciting to see the way you work, which is to bring people together around that 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 common challenge, um, and to share share what they're learning. I, I, how do you do that? Because People have such a lot of pressures on their time, and as you said, build, building relationships can can be really time intensive. Um, what is it that you use to as a as a hook to bring people in to to join your your um, movement, the, the 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 force that's going to make a difference?
2: It, it's it's a really great question, and it's something that. I've had to learn over a number of years, partly through through some very humble of experiences of, of, of not getting it right. But, uh, but I think actually, you know, passion is one thing and it will and take you a long way. Um, but I think the thing to be able to do is to always tailor your message for the audience that is receiving it. So it's no good talking to local authorities about... Um, Bed capacity. Um, in terms of pitching for their involvement, you you need to talk. You need to tailor the the conversation in a way that's meaningful to them. In in the same way, as if you're talking to health professionals or or voluntary sector professionals, you you have to pitch it around what this how this will make a difference to them. Um, and that actually, you know, together we're all part of a an integrated system that requires us to actually cooperate and work with each other. That's actually it's our duty to do that. But recognizing that we'll all have a, a different benefit to take home.
1: There's there's something really powerful there about you yeah, recognizing that this this is what we should be doing there's a legal duty for this or a statutory responsibility for that but ultimately the all institutions are run by people and uh i guess in when you're describing that tailoring understanding that someone else has priorities they might not be the same priorities as you so so just kind of matching up and aligning and linking into that is is really powerful
2: yeah i think it it is the framing it, it it's so important you you can't expect to go in with a cold sell with a a blanket um offer you you have to tailor it to to what what matters to them and their own corporate priorities mm.
1: you said earlier debbie that you you hadn't been applying for lots of money for this carers contingency work but innovation is expensive it takes time you need to take a risk so um you know normally you need to wait for a grant opportunity or something like that but you haven't done this here is is funding important for innovation
2: yeah i mean i think i think often we're driven by what funds and resources are becoming available and we end up trying to match what we want to do, or, or a strategic priority that we have against what 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 the funding is available. Increasingly, James, I'm thinking it's almost better to have those discussions uh, um, before uh, we we look for funding and then try and match the funding against against that. So um, for for us um, harnessing the uh, the the power of digital technology and and bringing big data sets together seems um, something which for, for many people conceptually they find very difficult to 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 manage who who's who's going to bid for this money who's going to own it when it's it has an intersect with all kinds of different partners um who who's going to who, who's going to host it and 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 play it um, I, I actually think in in this particular case the the cost um, has has been negligible in that sense. It's being bringing together people with expertise who all have a part to play in in the development of that plan. Keeping carers at the centre of it, so they're they're feeling um, that we're we're listening to what they want and and how they want it to play out. So we keep that roadmap always at the front of our minds, and then and then you know if you need funding, then look out for for potentially where that funding might sit. But I I I. I I get a sense, in you know, well, on occasions that a lot of this can become a tussle and a hierarchy, and um, I, I'm not interested in in hierarchy. Uh, if we if we get the right results, um, I don't I don't mind where it sits, whether it's in health, social care, or the voluntary sector um, or, or in private business. If we get the right results, that's then in the outcomes. That's what we should be aiming for.
1: Thank you, Debbie. Uh, I, I I know that will resonate with um, people around the country who who are sometimes struggling with that with that funding um, uh, challenge, and you know really seeing it as well what what is the thing that's going to make the difference, and then retrospectively how how do we uh, fit that into whatever funding opportunities come up, rather than trying to hang things onto um, different funding calls as they come. I, and Debbie, I guess uh, my last big question for you is around ambition because what you're doing in london is is a huge shift even though as you say you know it's not requiring huge amounts of funding it, it's it's a big step forward but not not all of us can be taking those great big steps all the way and sh- when we're trying to innovate would you dream of us uh, taking those big steps those big chunky leaps forward or should we be saying right well we are where we are what are the small incremental steps that will get us through to the next stage?
2: Oh, what a great question. And and especially today on the NHS 75th birthday, because for me, um, the biggest changes we can make is in our cultures and behaviours. And and that doesn't cost money. A lot of that is just very simple um, changes. So, uh, I'm with you, James. I think small steps can be the way forward, and and that is, and you can build on small steps. So the work that we've done on in London on care contingency planning has been the basis of, of um, uh, years of work. So uh, I don't want people to think that it just uh, arrived out of the blue. It, it had a very it had a very solid base in in work that was done elsewhere. But uh, I I honestly believe that um, on our separate 75th birthday, what we need to do is focus in on um, raising awareness um, around carers in the NHS and, and, and ensure that those that are underrepresented um, in our services um, are, are, are really given the opportunity to, to access the support that's available. Because we know when that support is available, it, it's life changing. And what does it cost to have a smile what does it cost to say to a carer, how are you doing? It, it doesn't cost anything. I've just seen that happen in, in, in a, with a caseworker in one of the hospitals in London. And it's very powerful, that question. Um, so it doesn't have to be a big sparkly uh, project like our universal care planning, contingency care, care, care planning. It can just be a simple reaching across that human divide.
1: Well, wow, what a powerful note to end on, Debbie. Uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, innovation that you've been part of implementing uh, over your career. And um, Debbie, what comes next for, for you and for the care's Contingency Plan work?
2: Well, I think at the moment, we're, we're really at a, a a tipping point, James. So the NHS Long-Term Plan um it it's had its first 5 years and and we now need to take stock of what's been achieved and we need to think very carefully of, of what our next steps are and what our approaches are so where things have worked really well how can we build on those but also how can we ensure that where wherever a carer pitch is up anywhere in the country that they they have their rights uh you know achieved and and they the support is there that that for me is 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 the next big big hurdle.
1: (laughs) Well, I know you'll have common cause with uh, many of our colleagues and listeners around the country. Debbie, thanks so much. Really great to hear from you.
2: It's a pleasure, James, and and my very best wishes to all the team at Mobilise.
1: Thank you.
0: So Debbie really dispels some of the myths about innovating for carers, that things are impossible or too hard, that we require a specific funding pot, or that this is a social care problem. She really recognised that Colleagues in health are more likely to have those first interactions with carers. I think that's really key. And she's been incredibly smart to see an opportunity to align the carers' contingency planning with this newly emerging universal care plan. And she was so well positioned and connected to be able to move quickly. I really love that joined up thinking. And it seems like it's a really scalable opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I was so pleased that she could use that example because... It has all the hallmarks of success so far, but also you can kind of see where it could go in the future. And actually, there was a... One of the things that I think is um, really important is that health foundation research about how uh, local authorities and health bodies uh, are actually reaching different groups of carers. When you map it across, there isn't much of an overlap between those two groups. So what that... um, what I can do by uh, using Debbie's um, innovation, uh, you can you can reach a much broader number of people ju- just by linking things up under the bonnet, in, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And that's really, really, really powerful.
0: Yeah, it really is. And yeah. And great to see how that links with the latest research, too. And right there at the heart of Debbie's innovative work, because it's not just, you know, the piece that she gave as an example. There's lots of other projects she's involved in and working on and and supporting. But right at the heart of her work is those strategic partnerships she's able to build and leverage. She's built trust over time. And what I really love about her is, and what she said, that really deliberate approach to focus on the positive. I think that really shines through. And that's what make stuff happen that's a bit of debbie's secret sauce i think
1: yeah totally and you really get the sense that uh, she's talking to you as a person and uh, yeah it's such a theme uh here in in the social care sector it feels a lot like institutions uh, organizations making decisions and of course actually it's people in organizations making decisions so by building that personal relationship i think she has uh you know a, a really great opportunity to, to make a difference uh, and of course you know building personal re- relationships d- that doesn't cost money uh, or need a particularly sophisticated um, uh, set of opportunities it's often just picking up the phone and instead of dropping an email uh, picking up the phone and, and having a chat with people and you can you can really have that sort of infectious sense of sharing uh, a problem and that optimism that something can be done so yeah it's, it's really powerful there
0: yeah, and I'm uh, just loving all these conversations we're having. I think it's just so great to be at the heart of these things and hearing what's going on. It gives me so much hope for the future that things are changing and innovation will kind of really have an impact. So thanks, guys. Thanks everyone that's joined us. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. And yeah, we're looking forward to doing more of it.
1: Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for joining us with Care Catalyst, brought to you by Mobilize. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally get them from, and look forward to the next episode.